Welcome. It's great to see you all. If you're here for the first time, a special welcome to you. Uh, it's great to have you with us here at Freedom Church. Uh, my name's Chris, and I'm one of the uh, the eldership team here. You're joining us as we are going through a preaching series on the Gospel of Mark, which has been really, really good. We, we, it's called Down to Earth Jesus. We've been talking about just the impact that Jesus made as he came to earth and, and lived out this just the most incredible life that's ever been lived um, on in the history of the earth. And we're kind of about halfway through, actually. And this morning, I want to start by taking you back about three years to the summer when I was 19. <laughs> Why are you laughing? There's even people who don't know me laughing at that. That's ridiculous. Okay, it was a bit longer than three years ago, but I was 19. Uh, it was actually the, the end of my first year at uni. And you know, to all intents and purposes, if, if, if you'd met me uh, in, in the right circumstances, you would say that I was a really good, godly guy. I was a Christian. I'd been a Christian for some years. I was born again. I'd been baptised in the Spirit. I'd actually just become one of the youngest people to be appointed uh, to the Christian Union exec. Normally you wait till second year. I got appointed in the first year. I obviously stood out as this awesome... Incredible man of God. And, and if you looked at me, you'd say, wow, yeah, this is, this is a good guy, stand-up guy. But you know, I was actually living, I would say, a bit of a double life. I was on, on the inside, and often on the outside, I was looking a bit more like this, if I'm absolutely honest. <laughs> Some would say I'm still looking a bit like that, a bit like Homer Simpson. Do you know, this, this day in the summer stands out for me as one of... Probably one of the worst days of my life, actually. I'd been working uh, in, a, in a hospital, just earning some money and getting to know a load of guys. And, and I'd been having a great time, and I got to know a load of non-Christian guys. And the highlight of the summer in this in this particular workplace was a day out to the races. And the whole point was we'd go, get on a minibus early in the morning, get down to the races, gamble a bit, drink a bit, eat a bit, have a, have a great laugh. And um, do you know what? I, I was completely seduced by it. I drank... All day, and I mean all day, from ten o'clock in the morning till till the end of the day. I drank and I drank and I drank, and I just I just went for the pleasures of the earth, all in. And I gambled and I, I did all the other things. And for some reason, I suggested to Debbie, who was my girlfriend at the time. Thankfully, she's my wife now. Look, why didn't you come and join us? When we get back from the races, we're going to hit the town. We're going to go into town, hit some bars. Why don't you come and join us? It'd be great to see you. But to be honest, by the time Debbie came to join us that evening. I was a flipping mess, if I'm absolutely honest. And she was not amused. I was slurring, I was staggering, I was absolutely ruined. I, I got to the point where a couple, two or three times that evening I bought a pint or someone bought me a pint and it just slipped straight through my hands. I couldn't even hold, literally couldn't hold my own drink. And I was, I was too far gone. I, I was not respecting other people. I was making bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. And I, I had actually lost control of myself. And eventually, at some point in the evening, I went too far and I made one inappropriate move too many. And do you know what? Quite rightly, Debbie snapped. She flipped. I've never seen her that angry before. I don't think I've seen her that angry since, so there's always time. <laughs> and she just turned to me and she was like, and I'll edit this, but she was like, what the heck are you doing? I've edited it. What the heck are you doing? She literally grabbed me in my hand and just stopped me in my tracks. 
And you know, it was jarring. It was like someone had pressed the emergency stop button. Like I'd been awoken from a stupor. And suddenly, in that instant, amazingly, after how goodness knows how many drinks, I suddenly felt a little bit more sober. And I suddenly had this realisation of how I'd been behaving, what I'd been doing, the mess that I was in, and the hurt that I was causing to the woman that even then I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And you know, it hadn't just been that night, actually. It had been the whole year, the whole first year of uni leading up to it. Even though I'd I'd made some moves and I'd, I'd, I'd got involved with the CU and people thought I was this good guy, actually... On the inside, in the, in the dark places, and, and when I was out with my non-Christian friends, I was just, I was just hitting the beer. And I was having way too much fun. And actually, I pretty much abandoned Debbie in the first year of university. She was having a tough time. And I was out party, partying with my mates. Frankly, I was lucky to have Debbie as my girlfriend that night, and even luckier afterwards. And you know, what followed was a whole load of soul searching, and apologising, and rebuilding and begging almost, not for the last time in our marriage. Um, and I'll be, but I will be forever grateful for Debbie's rebuke to me that night when she just turned around and said, that is enough. What are you doing? I needed that badly. I needed that rebuke. I needed that stopping in my tracks and telling that's too far. And it was incredibly difficult actually in that moment to see and hear Debbie's reaction, to see the weight of what my actions had put on her. Because she is the person in the world, the human person that I most want to bless and I most want to please. And I had let her down so very badly. But seeing the effect of my actions just brought it all home to me that I needed to grow up or risk losing the most important person in my life. You know, sometimes we need that, don't we? We need that brutal honesty, that dose of truth, that we're getting something wrong, so badly wrong, and sometimes it can be actually that, that moment of realisation, that moment of, hang on, stop, you're getting this wrong, can actually be one of those loving and life-changing experiences in the long run. And today, in our, in our passage, we're going to see someone getting a much-needed rebuke from the most important person in their life. And there's a helpful warning, I think, in this passage, not just for the person in this passage, but I think for all of us here this morning, young or old, Christian or non-Christian, I hope that some, for all of us this morning, there's something, there'll be a bit of a jolt on the thing that we need. We're going to read the passage together. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 8. It's going to come up on the screen. Uh, and we're verses 27 to 33. Let me read it to you. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
Now this is an incredible passage of scripture. It's regarded as the moment in which this entire gospel story, we'll come to that in a minute, the entire gospel gospel story swings actually. It's the big reveal, the moment that the disciples twig and realise this guy is not just a good teacher, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a rabbi, he is the Messiah. They suddenly recognise the significance of Jesus. And Jesus is well aware that he's been the hot topic of conversation in the area. And he's set tongues wagging all around with his miracles, his teaching, even the controversy he caused. Everyone has got an opinion about who he is. And so he turns to his disciples. He lays it on the line. He says, come on, what about you guys? Who do you say I am? And you know, Peter, in probably one of his better moments, seems to nail it. He's a Jew. He's familiar with the scriptures. He's familiar with the prophecies and the predictions and the promises that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come and save God's people and restore Israel. And he recognizes this moment of clarity, this moment of realization. This is the guy. You are the Messiah, Jesus. Bingo. Well done, Peter. What a guy. I bet he's feeling pretty smug like Jose Mourinho looks and feels most of the time, except for recently. Um, Sorry, we've got, we've got a Man United fan with us for the first time. I'm instantly throwing abuse at him. I do apologise. But Peter's probably feeling pretty smug. Do you know that? You know when you're in a pub quiz and there's an answer that no one can get and then one person gets and they sit there like, yeah, I got that one. That's how Peter's feeling right now, I think. But you know what happens next, I think, is just plain odd. I'm a big fan of things like Alan Partridge and The Office and David Brent. I love it when you watch a comedy and the central character is just making huge errors and making people cringe and you're just watching them just fall to bits like David Brent when he does his ridiculous dance in the office and the whole place just falls silent and the awkwardness, I love it. I love watching people absolutely die on stage or absolutely just get something wrong. That's why I like listening to my own preachers sometimes. Debbie, on the other hand, absolutely hates this. Like, she is such an empathiser. She, like, she, she just feels it. Like, she'll be watching David Brent and she'll be like, oh, what I can think about is how he must feel inside. I can't enjoy, I can't laugh at him. It's too difficult. It's not fair. And do you know what? I think Debbie would have hated hanging out with Peter. Because a lot of the time, his life was just an absolute cringe fest. He made so many unbelievable mistakes. And not just, you know, like us, when we make a bit of a mistake, then it's kind of restricted mainly to the people who've witnessed it. For Peter, his mistakes are written in scripture and repeated and repeated week after week in churches over across the world. You know, he, he did, he did ridiculous things like, you know, he, 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 he so nearly did it when Jesus was walking across the water and she said, get out of the boat and walk. And Peter gets out of the boat and he starts walking. And then he panics and just starts sinking. It's like, oh, Peter, you nearly had it. You nearly did it. There's a time when he's on the mountain and the transfiguration happens. And Jesus is glowing white. And suddenly Moses and Elijah are there. And this is an amazing moment. And Peter's response is, um, shall I put a tent up? And you're like, no. <laughs> like, that's, no, what you want about Peter? You just ruin the moment. Um, and then, of course, there's this big, awful, awful moment where he denies Jesus. Jesus tells him, he's gonna, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. He's like, no, Jesus, I'll never do that. And then what happens? He does it. He denies Jesus three times. And this moment right now is another one of Peter's cringe moments. He has just recognized Jesus as the Messiah. 
He's nailed it. Jesus, you're the Messiah. I got the answer right. I got it right. You're him. I know it. And Jesus is like, great. Well done, Peter. So let me tell you a little bit about what that means. And it says that he starts to teach them plainly about what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you what's coming next. I'm going to let you in on it. Verse 31, he predicts that he's going to be rejected. He tells them he's going to be crucified. He tells them he is going to die. And then that he's going to rise again. It says he spoke plainly. No bull, no rubbish, just on the line. Guys, now you know who I am. This is what is going to happen. And Peter's reaction, he's just told him you're the Messiah. He pulls him to one side and rebukes him. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He puts Jesus on the naughty step. Don't talk like that, Jesus. Go and sit over there and think about what you've just said. You're not going to die. You're not going to do all that stuff. You're the Messiah. I'm not having that. You know, Peter's got some guts there in, in a way. If he genuinely thinks that Jesus is the Messiah, if he genuinely thinks this man is God himself, then talking to him like this is kind of brave, but completely stupid. But a little bit brave. You know, I said at the start, sometimes a rebuke is really needed, but the rebuke that Peter gives to Jesus, not a good idea. That's not the kind of rebuke we need. Generally speaking, generally speaking, and you can take this one home for free, rebuking Jesus is not a good idea. <laughs> if you remember only one thing from this morning, I would steer clear generally rebuking Jesus. But how does Jesus respond? Actually, he knows that this needs to be nipped in the bud. It could be all nicey-nice, say, oh, Peter, come on, you know, you just got this a bit wrong. But no, actually, Jesus delivers an absolute stinger of rebuke. And he says this, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Can you imagine Jesus comparing you to Satan? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In that rebuke, I believe that Jesus identified something in Peter, which I think is actually a bit of a sickness and an issue inside the heart of all of humankind. We are self-centered, we are selfish, we are individualistic. We think of ourselves first. Peter's recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. He's recognized that Jesus is actually the guy who's going to save loads and loads of people. But when he realizes that his friend is going to die, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't do that. You're my friend. I'm following you. I've given up everything in my life to follow you. I've given up my job, I've given up my home, I've moved away from my family, I'm with you and I'm enjoying being with you. If you go and die, where does that leave me? Well, what's going to happen to me? I don't want to, I, I don't want to see you go through that for one thing, but what, what becomes of me? I'll have to go back to my hometown with my tail between my legs, I'll have to start fishing again, I don't want to go back to that life. Jesus, you're not thinking of me here. It's going to put me in danger. And Jesus stops him. It's like, Pete, I love you, but and I die for you. But you know, it's not about you. I'm here to save everyone. I'm not just your Messiah. I'm not just here for you. I've got a whole people to save. And you need to understand that quickly. As I've reflected on this passage, I'm more and more aware of the dangers of Peter's error. This tendency 
to have in mind, as Jesus said, having in mind human concerns ahead of the concerns of God. You know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. You know, this week I've, I've been at various <clears throat> freshers fairs trying to promote church, not just our church, but church across Liverpool, saying to students, guys, have you ever thought about going to church? Would you like to try going to church while you're in Liverpool? Great that you're here. Welcome to Liverpool. Why don't you try and go to church? Why don't you see what it's like? Check this God thing out. And, you know, the response from most of them was that they couldn't wait to get past me and get to the free Domino's pizza and the free Bacardi shots. You know, they were already, as soon as I started talking, they were looking past me. That The very mention of the word church, for some people, it was, it was either laughter or what? Church? Like a dirty word? Actually, they don't have, they don't have in mind the things of God. The vast majority. They've got in mind human concerns. It's evident in the greed that exists across the world as the rich trample over and exploit the poor. People have been created equally by God whose heart breaks every time he sees one of his children oppressed and downtrodden. But too often, we've got our own human concerns ahead of the concerns of God. And that results in the horrible imbalance we have in this world. When we see people chasing status and power for themselves, rather than understanding the teaching of Jesus, that actually the last will be first, and the first to be last. People don't see it. They've got their own concerns ahead. And you know what? We even see it in our lovely, perfect, kind, Christian world as well. We do. We get frustrated. When we get frustrated with church, when a sermon's a bit too long, or the songs aren't the ones we like this morning. And we allow that to distract ourselves and frustrate us and get in the way of that time of God. We're thinking about our own concerns and what we want from church. Instead of actually, what God, what, what might God want to say to me this morning? Even through that song that I don't really like. Even through that preach that was ten minutes too long. I'm very wary of time this morning. We see it when we get caught up in chasing the one thing that we haven't got in our lives and we forget about all the ways that God has blessed us. When we get obsessed and we chase that relationship that we yearn, the boyfriend or girlfriend that we think is missing, that's going to make us complete. And we chase that over and above our relationship with God. When we chase that next career move, when we decide that we're not earning enough, and we need to be higher up and we need more authority and we should be doing better. And we chase that and life's not complete until I've reached that rung of the ladder. When we chase, when we put our family, whether you've got kids or not, when, when, when that, when that whole family dynamic becomes the idol in your life, ahead of God. Even our health. These are all things that we can chase, we can run after, that we desire to be right, that we place such high importance on ahead of just that, the, the oneness with God. There are things that we seem to believe that we are owed to us, that are owed to us by the world. And they somehow become deal breakers for our relationship with God. Do you know what, God? I'm not going to trust you until you've delivered on that one thing. Until you give me what I've been after. I can't worship you. I can't trust you. I can't put my faith in you until you've given me what I want. And for too many people... These things make or break faith. Or maybe, like me, back in university, when we chase after the material and the hedonistic, 
when we chase after the pleasures of this world, when we put them up there and God down here somewhere, when we chase after the drink and the sex and the holidays and the fun and the drugs, when life isn't complete unless we're experiencing those highs, those thrills, and those things inevitably get placed above God. We seem to believe that they're going to deliver something that God can't. Peter's example was pretty extreme. But I do think that rebuke from Jesus somewhere with each of us lands. He's our Messiah. He lived, he died, he rose again for us so that we have a relationship with him and his Father. And it's not that God merely did something nice for us that we're supposed to remember every now and again. It's not that Jesus lived and died and every so often we just reflect on that a bit. No, Jesus promises us life in abundance. He tells us that his kingdom is here. He longs for our attention, our focus. He wants us to live by the Spirit. And by Spirit, I don't mean whiskey or rum. He wants us to live by his Holy Spirit. He wants us to experience the full joy of a relationship with him in every moment, in every place, in every circumstance. And yet we are so easily distracted. So easily. Just before the passage I read this morning, there's another passage which I think we can draw some, some, some further help from in understanding this. It's verses 22 to uh, 25, 26. And Jesus comes to a place called Bethsaida. Let me just read it. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes, interesting technique, and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And the guy's like, no, you just spat in my eye. (laughs) No, he didn't say that. Uh, He looked up and said, I see people. But they look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Bethsaida was a Jewish town. The earliest story actually takes place in a, in a Gentile town. But this, sorry, the, the story we just talked about before is in Caesarea Philippi, which is a Gentile town. But this, this healing takes place around Bethsaida, and that's actually a fishing village, a Jewish town on the shores of Lake Galilee. It's actually where Peter and Andrew, the disciples, were born. And on the surface, it's just like many others, many other of Jesus' healings. It's a sick person, Jesus heals him, he's better, tickety-boo, on you go. But actually, there's a couple of things we notice here. The first thing is this, verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Hold on to that. And the second thing is this. Jesus takes two attempts to fully heal this guy. The first time around, when he, when the guy starts to see, he can't see properly. He says, I, I see people, but they kind of look like trees. I'm, I'm walking around. It's not clear. And then Jesus prays again, and he is healed. Why? Why, why are these curiosities about why these two things happen? Firstly, the leaving the village thing. It's important to know a bit more about Bethsaida. Because elsewhere in scripture, in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, Jesus says this, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago, 
in sackcloth and ashes. In Bethsaida was a place that witnessed many, many, many miracles of Jesus. And yet we find out that that town remained unrepentant, remained far from God, didn't accept Jesus as who he was, didn't see him as the Messiah, didn't believe him, didn't open itself up fully to him. So Jesus grabs this guy by the hand and he leads him out. He takes him away from this place, this culture of unbelief, this culture of skepticism and cynicism to a place of intimacy, a place where it's just him and this blind guy, where he has his undivided attention and then he heals him. And I think that's in line with his rebuke to Peter because in a culture and a setting where unbelief and distraction from God are huge barriers to us. I believe God wants to just grab us by the hand and take us to that intimate place. Take him, take us with him, to be alone with him, where he demands our attention and he wants to speak to us and he wants to love on us and he wants us to know exactly who he is. And it's like he's fighting through the crowd. God, I just want, just come with me. All this other stuff that's getting in the way, all these other things that are taking your attention, just, just come away from there, even just for a minute. And just come and know me. I think there's something in that. And when, and when you get to that place of intimacy, that place where it's just you and Jesus, incredible things happen. We see a healing happen take place here. But even just, just spending time in worship and in prayer and it's in the spirit, there's no better place. And the second thing, this, this partial and then the full healing, I think we can link that again to, the, to Peter's story and to ours. This guy goes from blindness to sight on the first look. But actually we quickly realise that he's not seeing everything clearly. He's not fully healed. And you know, I think spiritually that's what happens with Peter. He declares Jesus as Messiah. And on the face of it, yeah, you've seen the light, Peter. You've got it. You've got it. You've gone from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. And then very quickly we realise, no, he hasn't. <laughs> He's seen him as Messiah, but he hasn't realised what that means. And that's why Jesus has to rebuke him. And you know what? I think that can be the same in our lives. It was certainly the same for me. As I, as, Again, as I look back to my student days, I was baptised. I was baptised in the Spirit. I was walking with God. I called him my Saviour. And yet there was something where I just wasn't seeing him clearly because... I was letting everything else get in the way. The drink, the fun, the boozing, the hedonistic lifestyle. It's like I'd, I'd, I'd recognised him over there as Messiah, but wasn't seeing him clearly enough. And you know what? It still happens today. Not the boozing, thankfully. But actually that, that constant, oh God, I know who you are. I trust you. And yet the moment something difficult comes up, I seem to throw it all out the window. And I panic. And I worry, and I get anxious, and I stress, and I don't trust him. How many of us can say that? We know who he is. We know what he's done for us. We know his promises on our lives. And yet the first sign of trouble, we turn the wrong way. We stop seeing him clearly. This morning, I'm nearly done. I I just believe that God wants to lead us out from spiritual blindness this morning. I believe he wants to help us to see clearly, to focus on him and not the world. That rebuke, you have in mind the things of humans and not of God. I believe that's kind of for all of us this morning. I believe there's probably something in all of our lives we can look at and say, do you know what, I've, I've put that first. 
I've put that up there and it should be down here somewhere. Doesn't mean that it's not important, doesn't mean that it's not difficult, it doesn't mean that you're wrong to have a concern about something. But Jesus wants all of your concerns. He wants all of your problems. He wants you to rely on him. He wants to take everything that you've got going on that's balled up, that's getting in the way of him, and just throw it at him and say, Jesus, I need you. You've got to do this. You've got to take this from me. I believe he wants to do that for some of us this morning. There may be things that are just on your heart or on your mind that you just cannot get past. Desires of your heart or or issues, problems. We've had problems this week, me and Debbie, with financial issues and problems with the tenant we've got in Leeds. And do you know what? This week that has distracted me, something rotten. And I didn't give it to God anywhere near quickly, as quickly as I should have done. I'm sure Debbie did. Debbie did a much better job of it than me. I'm not going to throw her under the bus. But I, I, I worried and panicked and got stressed and angry. I'm like, actually, God, you've, you've got this. This isn't the most important thing. God wants to take our eyes off the things that are distracting us and put them on the main thing. That relationship, that pursuit of a relationship and intimacy with him. We're going to stand and worship in a minute. Let me just let me just speak to three three groups of people that I think, as we worship, you might just want to do some business with God this morning. First of all, students. If you're a student here today, if you're here for the first time, if you're if you've just arrived in Liverpool, this is a new start, a fresh start in this new city, and there's big challenges. And let me tell you, big temptations ahead. There's going to be so many opportunities for you to compromise yourself, to compromise your faith almost daily. I'll just ask you that question. What will you have in mind? The things of God or the things of humans? Even if you're far from home, Jesus is here and he wants your attention. And he wants intimacy with you here in Liverpool. So I'll just say, set your stall out today. Set your stall out this week. Say, God... For the next three years, however many years it is, I'm going to put the things of you first and everything else can line up after it. Secondly, if you're a Christian here this morning, no matter what your age, is there something that's got your attention ahead of God? Is there something that has just grasped you and it's just taken up all your time, all your energy, all your thought? It could be a problem, it could be your career, a relationship, your health, could be something pleasurable. It could be could be an idol, a passion that is getting in the way of true intimacy with God. God says this morning, I'm interested in you. I have a plan for your life and I want to know you deeply and I want you to experience the fullness of me. And those things that are getting in the way, I can help you with them. I can bless you with them. I can love you through them. But don't put them above me. Come to me first. And then finally, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. Are you like the people of Bethsaida? Have you allowed yourself to become hard-hearted and sceptical? Have you heard the amazing things about what Jesus said and did? The miracles, the teaching, the incredible life he led. And have you just closed yourself off and said, nah, Not for me. I believe again this morning, he wants to take you by the hand and open your eyes. Hopefully not spitting them. 
But why not ask him? Why not ask him this morning? Do you know what, God? Do you know what, Jesus? Reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are. I want to know. I want to see what all this fuss is about. I want to know this, this intimacy that we talk about, this relationship. I don't, I don't get it. Please will you reveal yourself to me? There are three things I want to just leave you with this morning. Can we have the, the worship band back up? I'm just going to pray. Lord, we thank you that you, you love us so much. You loved us enough to die for us, to shed your blood for us. And that's not the end, Lord. You don't just die for us and then leave us to figure it out, Lord. You die for us and you rose again. And then you long to have a living, lifelong, vibrant, intimate relationship with us, Lord. And Lord, I thank you that part of that relationship, Lord, involves sometimes that you rebuke us, you discipline us, that you give us a heads up and say, hey, over here, and here, and here, don't forget about me. Don't leave me bottom of the pile. Don't have in mind those human concerns over and above me. I am your primary concern. And everything else is to line up after me. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much. That you want to take all of that in hand, Lord. And you just want to lead us by the hand into intimacy with you. Into those quiet places where your spirit moves. Where we know your presence. We know your touch. We know your comfort. Where we know your love and your joy. Where we meet with you and actually the things of this earth just fade away. Fade away as we just gaze on you. Look over your help us this morning to just respond how we need to respond, Lord. If there's people who don't know you here this morning, Lord, I pray that you will reveal yourself right now. Lord, that, that knocking on the door of their hearts will get louder and louder until they just have to open it up. Lord, I pray for people who are particularly struggling this morning, Lord, where, where there's big issues in their lives that are, <clears throat> that are just taking over, that are robbing them of relationship with you. I just pray that you'll break in this morning, that you will once again be the main thing. Top of the pile, Lord. Lord, and we ask for your forgiveness. We repent, Lord, of the times where we, we've tried to do it ourselves, the times where we've chased after other things more than we've chased after you. I apologize, Lord. I repent of where I've done it in my own life, not just as a student, but in all the years since, Lord, where I've got that wrong. But Lord, I thank you that you forgive us. I thank you that you just pour out grace upon grace and that you never run out of love for us. Lord, we just want to worship you now. We want to put you where you belong, Lord, right at the top. We want to lift your name high right now, Jesus. Pray that you'll minister to us now as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.